because this is a unique moment in business history. We have never seen anything like this before, where there's been a prohibition of something for 80 years. That's the size of these industries. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Leslie Butchcourt. Leslie, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. It's really great to be here. It's really great to be here on camera with you. You know, I've been reading uh, what you've been doing and watching what you've been doing. And it's just such an honor. And I, I love what you've been doing. Your, your fans are enormous. The, the following is great and the content is excellent. I really appreciate you saying that. And Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Just enjoying Colorado and really excited to talk to Leslie. Yeah, uh, Leslie, for the record, Leslie? where were you born, Leslie? I was born, <laughs> I was born in New York City. That's an uh, East Coaster for us. I Where am, are you located I'm, now, though? I'm, I'm out in Las Vegas. The West Coast. I, yeah, well, you know, right, yeah, yeah, Pacific time zone. I was born at a hospital that no longer exists, Flower Fifth Avenue. Grew up in, in and around New York City and moved out here to Vegas in 2010. Awesome, awesome. So awesome. Let's, let's kind of dive in a little bit. For our listeners that aren't familiar about you, can you give a little background about you? Uh, so, you know, personally, like I said, I'm from New York City. I actually spent some time growing up in northwestern New Jersey as well. Uh, so, you know, very much an East Coaster. As I said, you know, before you can take the uh, the boy out of the city, but you can't take the city out of the boy. I'm always going to be very fond of New York. I try to get back as often as I can. Um, you know, on a personal note, I'm very oriented towards uh, uh, cultural endeavors and sort of uh, values-oriented projects. I've been the chairman and founder of a couple of arts and philanthropic organizations. Uh, personally, I'm an avid attendee and have been, although not recently, of Burning Man. My wife and I have been going together since 1998. My son went for the first time uh, when he was just two months old. He's also the youngest ever recipient of a Burning Man honorarium art grant for a project called the Jedi Dog Temple for Kids. That ended up being in a Burning Man uh, art show that was in the Smithsonian. Professionally, I started out in investment banking and finance a number of years ago. I was one of the first investment bankers to focus on the internet and new media as a new sector back in the mid to late 90s. I have been a cannabis enthusiast. My original due diligence on cannabis goes back to when I was 15 years old. And I started smoking pot for the first time at my school bus stop prior to going to high school. Anyway, personally, I ended up coming out here to Vegas for quality of life reasons. It, it, it turns out that when I came here, I didn't realize how awesome, warm, dry, and sunny was, but it's been fantastic. And then also I got really lucky in that Nevada is one of the jurisdictions and probably the jurisdiction with the best regulatory framework for legalized cannabis and um, adult, for medical and adult use cannabis. And then when I got out here, I just sort of switched my focus originally coming out to the to Las Vegas to do research on the casino and gaming industry. And when I got here, I saw that hemp and cannabis presented an opportunity that when I did my research was unlike anything I'd ever encountered in all of my previous years in finance and banking. And so I focused on it exclusively. And so here we are. I'm excited to kind of dive into some of those specifics. So when you were making that transition or thinking about making that transition from that pivot from investment banking to cannabis, was there any hesitation? Take us through what those early days were like and what you were feeling when you were making that move. 2010, I come out to Vegas. 
And I've been a cannabis, you know, aficionado on and off for many years, since I was 15. I stopped when I was working in finance. I stopped having anything to do with it, not because I thought there was anything wrong with it, but just I went through a period where I wasn't drinking. I wasn't smoking. I wasn't you know, I was just not drinking coffee. I was just being super straight and narrow and focused on my career. Uh, and so when I came out here, although I wasn't an active, consistent cannabis user, I had always been very much a, you know, had an affinity for it. And so I came out here and I saw there was a medical marijuana market, although not a market, there was a medical marijuana law in Nevada. I went and visited some friends in San Francisco. You know, they they showed me what was going on with dispensaries and the medical marijuana market in, in, in California. And I started to do some research on it because I knew that if there was going to be legal legal adult use cannabis, it was going to be a massive opportunity. So I started reading some research in 2010 and 11. One of a couple of reports I read were the Rand Corp and the United Nations studies that were done about the illegal market, the black market for marijuana cannabis in the United States. And in 2010, according to Rand Corp in the UN, the market for black market uh, cannabis in the United States was between 42 and 50 billion dollars a year. Now, to give you an idea, the total value of the all professional sports, essentially, the same year, Major League Baseball, the NFL, the NHL, and the NBA was under $35 billion. So weed was bigger than sports in America. And that got me to really sort of think, and I was really digging into it. And then Colorado and Washington passed adult use. A friend of mine who's a political operative, Joe Bresney, who is just, without him, I don't think we would have the weed industry in the United States, the cannabis industry in the United States that we do. Uh, he said, you know, watch what happens. It's gonna, They're going to pass these ballot initiatives. And I said, Joe, you're just a hopeful stoner. It's never going to happen in our lifetimes. Sure enough, they passed them exactly the way they said he said they would. I sat down with him. I said, okay, you're right. I was wrong. Explain to me how you knew that and what's going on. And he showed me the data. And I said, oh, this is the moment. And so I unwound all of my previous projects that I was involved in, and I began to focus exclusively on hemp and cannabis and what those industries would represent in the United States and beyond and how that was going to roll out, how that phenomena was going to move throughout the world. And uh, as a result, I got very fortunate. I got involved very deeply in the policy side, advising policymakers here in Nevada, in California, Pennsylvania. Florida, Costa Rica, now Mexico, and other places. And um, I haven't looked back. It's been a spectacular shift. It's, uh, candidly, it's one of the, the five best decisions of my life. Did you ever consider moving to Colorado or Oregon after they, they passed those ballots? So I considered moving to Colorado prior to my moving to Vegas, actually. So one of the um, places that my wife and I had on our decision matrix to consider moving to was Glenwood Springs, Colorado. Like talk about quality of life, one of the best places in the world. I'm originally from Crested Butte, so it's just right over the pass. Oh, no way. Oh, dude. That is, <laughs> totally. Let me tell you, Colorado, listen, I love, I love my life here in Vegas, but I got to tell you, if uh, the, you know, the opportunity presents itself, I would not be surprised if I were to start, you know, spending some time every year uh, out at Glenwood Springs. I've been looking at it very seriously ever since we moved to Vegas. Beautiful hot springs there. Oh my God. One of the one of the only naturally occurring 
vapors in the world. I know. Cave with a hot spring emanating in, into it. In like, and as a matter of fact, it's a famous. It was famous for uh, Doc Holiday. That's right. Nine days because of his being uh, tuberculotic, and it's such an incredible place. And the energy there is amazing, and the food and the environment and the you know activities. It's just such a great, a great location. One of the most, one of my favorite places in the entire country. And now the cannabis too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 As a matter of fact, I'm hoping to go back and visit there. If not this summer, early fall of this year. So I want to ask, your hands are tied all across the industry with multiple companies. Take me through what a day-to-day is like for Leslie. What type of topics is is he going through? What type of conversations are you having? And talk to us about what goes on. Great question. So um, the days can be very different on a day-to-day basis, but overall on a week-to-week and month-to-month basis, it's pretty consistent. Our focus right now, my focus right now is One, we are very interested in the moment in time that we're in as regards the beginnings of the establishment of brands that will be the brands that last for years to come in cannabis, in hemp, in consumer products that cross uh, around the entire spectrum. So one area is we're very focused on brand development and where that's going, understanding what the who the consumers are of the various different product categories, making sure we understand those discrete product categories, understanding the consumer and their need states in those product categories, understanding what their spending patterns will be, and then understanding what brand type of presence will likely be able to establish a relationship with the consumers and last for time to come. So there's a big portion of my time that's spent on that. Another portion of my time is spent on policy. How will policy evolve as regards hemp, cannabis, domestically and internationally? So meaning, for example, some of the issues we look at, even though hemp is legal, there are still so many gray areas, Delta 8, Delta 10. There's even someone out there that believes that as long as the gummies they produce are less than 0.3% THC by weight that they can produce THC gummies that are legal to ship across borders. Because technically speaking, if it's less than 0.3% THC by weight, it's considered hemp. It's not considered marijuana on a federal basis. Then there is also, we're trying to understand how does the work and process hemp extract and the fact that when people are making these different products, how does the fact that the extract goes above 0.3% THC in the manufacturing process, thereby breaking federal law. And then that extract is now considered marijuana. So does that mean that the products that are made from that now are illegal? Legal? Again, gray area. How's that going involved? What's going to happen on the federal basis with the safe the SAFE Act, what's going to happen with descheduling? What's the Department of Justice going to do and when and why? Then we're looking at Mexico. Mexico, you know, three years ago, their Supreme Court declared the prohibition of cannabis on individual use and possession and even having a market for it was illegal. And so they, for three years now, have been trying to implement a regulatory framework to create a legal market there. Uh, How is that going to evolve? How will Europe evolve? Greece, Germany, Spain, Italy, Portugal, France, how will those markets evolve over time. Then looking at Asia, India, uh, Thailand, and others, 
how will those markets evolve over time? So there's a lot of time that we spend on analyzing that, um, speaking to the stakeholders in those areas, and trying to really not just understand what's going on, but where we can, how can we help on a pro bono basis? How can we write white papers? How can we provide access to real data so that in every one of these conversations, it can be a conversation of fact-based data between sensible people so we can start to see the beginning of real uh, rationality in how cannabis and hemp are dealt with moving forward. Then another part of my day is spent on the enterprises that navigate these areas and what is it that we're going to do? What are we, you know, so again, Mexico, I'm extremely interested, not just in the Mexican market. I think that the entire um, Spanish and Portuguese speaking market, the Latinx market is over 750 million people worldwide. The United States and Canada is just, Canada is just 360 million. So essentially, Double the size of that market is the Latinx market. And so we see that as an area that people have not been as focused on. And we're very interested in, in what that is. And then, you know, there's a, I'm a father. I have a, a my, my son is, a, you know, is 10 years old. And I'm hopefully going to be trying to make it to Burning Man this year with him and my wife. So when I get some free time, we talk about doing things like that. But as regards, you know, professionally, we are focused on, what the changes are going to be and how they're going to manifest, what's going on from a policy perspective and how can we help with that. And then also, you know, I have been extremely interested in the public markets, what's going to happen with the public markets, because we see that when we do ultimately see the United States change its federal policy, that the uh, corresponding shifts as regards to the flows of capital, the velocity of capital, the establishment of businesses, the creation of value, the creation of jobs, et cetera, is going to have a significant change as well. And so we spend a lot of time trying to understand that, prepare for it, and, and be in a position to make the most of it as, a, as it changes. That's a, a ton of items that you're kind of juggling. Back and forth. Uh, do you, is it like scheduled out where you're like, okay, from eight to nine, I think about policy, from nine to 10, mm-hmm. I deal with brands or is it a lot more fluid throughout the day or is it kind of like each day is kind of devoted to one of those topics? So it's really fluid because this is a very entrepreneurial time, you know, and so um, in, in the beginning of any industry, when I was there at the beginning of the, the uh, internet and new media industry, when I've watched the beginning of the cryptocurrency and fintech revolution that's come out of blockchain and hash graph, when I've looked at the cybersecurity industry and where we are with that, which is also another industry that is very, you know, sort of, it's, it's big, but it's going to become a lot bigger pretty quickly. When we look at the early stages of those industries, agility and flexibility are really the rules of the day because things move so quickly, changes happen so fast that if I establish a more rigid structure for myself, I'll miss a lot of the opportunities and I'll find myself at odds with the environment I'm trying to navigate. So at this point in what we're doing, we're very entrepreneurial. We're very, we focus on agility. We focus on flexibility moving forward so that we can navigate this rapidly changing, super dynamic and very challenging environment from a, a perspective of how we can contribute as corporate citizens and as citizens in general, because we're very values-based. We want to make sure that what we're doing is the right thing to do. And then how we can also 
navigate it from an economic basis to make sure we're making the right decisions for ourselves and our partners. They also play so nicely together, right? When you're talking about like domestic challenges and what what could potentially happen from a scenario standpoint, that's critical for your current day-to-day. But then forward-looking from an international standpoint, where you want to expand, even more so for, let's say, what the future opportunity holds. And then communicating with policymakers about the importance of, hey, we need to get our stuff together because if not, we're going to be left out of important conversations and the U.S. will be literally locked into the United States without having access to that global market. So, while, while it is probably challenging to juggle all those, it's probably also super critical to have a perspective on the different variables so that you can make accurate recommendations when you're leading up your team for success in the future. Brian, you couldn't be more right. Let me just make a couple of observations. I'm not going to name any names because I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. We have seen billions of dollars just lit on fire and burned just to create warmth. There's been no effect from so much money that's been spent on people trying to come in and and navigate this and make money in the cannabis and hemp industry. Why? Because this is a unique moment in business history. We have never seen anything like this before, where there's been a prohibition of something for 80 years that's the size of these industries. Let's talk for a minute about hemp. So hemp, as a result of the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937, and then the Single Convention Treaty on Narcotic Drugs at the United Nations, and I guess what was it, 63, um, essentially hemp was made illegal on an international basis because of policy changes that the United States made internally. And so um, those shifts, making hemp illegal, kept it out of these three very important industries So the three industries that hemp was left out out of that it's now starting to come into as a disruptor are plastics, paper, and fiber. So hemp was made legal during World War II because it's a great source of of parachute material, cord, all sorts of reasons. It's such an incredibly useful plant for so many things. But in the last 80 years, 100 years nearly, there's been so much innovation in hydrocarbon-based plastics. It's a 1.1% trillion dollar industry five years ago. The global fiber industry, cotton and other fibers, $700 billion. The global paper industry, the average US consumer uses 700 pounds of paper per year. 700 pounds of paper per year. The average consumer, the global paper industry, just the top 300 companies is something like 600 billion a year. And as a regard now, Pulp paper made from trees is horribly inefficient. I mean, a lot, it's sort of generally known. A paper mill in a town is so toxic or so unpleasant that people that live there end up getting an odor in their bodies that emanates from their bodies just because of their proximity to the plant and all of the effluent and what comes out of it. The plastics industry, who doesn't know about the, the garbage patch in the Pacific Ocean? How many times a day do we hear stories about microplastics in our body, microplastics in our food, microplastics in in the water, where we're finding out about plastic and not just the plastic itself and the difficulty it has in biodegrading into other components, but the things that get released like toluene and benzene and other toxins that are endocrine disruptors, carcinogens and, and more that go into our our um, environment on a consistent basis from our use of plastics. How many things do we have 
that are made of plastic, our phones, headphones, water bottles, everywhere, everything is made of plastic. And these plastics are highly toxic to our environment. Hemp-based plastic and bioplastics, even Henry Ford in the 40s recognized the value of it when he built a car largely out of bioplastics that hemp was a huge component of, which is why now automobile manufacturers are starting to do the same thing. They're making many of their components out of hemp-based plastic. Well, why is that so significant? It's significant because when hemp biodegrades, it doesn't create the type of problems that plastic does. Not only it ends up becoming one of the largest carbon negative industries in the world as we pull the carbon dioxide out of the air into the hemp plant, we make plastics out of that carbon that's in the plant. And then when it's, it goes into landfill as waste, it's essentially carbon sequestration, taking the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and putting it back in the earth in a positive way. Now, what, what does this have to do with your original question? It has to do with the fact that what we're trying to understand is how these changes will manifest in these industries. Where will those opportunities be? How do we need to understand how regulation will affect it? And how do we position ourselves, first and foremost, to make the best contribution to the world around us, to add value, to do things that are values-based, and to, in, in some way to reduce harm in our actions by making the world a better place. Then, of course, we wouldn't even be looking at it if we didn't see that there was a way to do this that made a lot of sense economically. And then we look at the various businesses that are going to be able to come out of that. That's one big part of it, hemp and industrial uses. Then we look at consumer products that are based upon it and what we're going to be able to do in that area and how the regulatory market will be important to navigate and influence, not for regulatory capture for ourselves, how to make good regulation for the citizens of the jurisdictions where the regulation exists. Because when you have good regulation, you then have good business environments that have good outcomes for everyone, for the business people, for the citizens, and for the policymakers that, that are in the jurisdiction. So we're super involved in that as well. And every day, our focus is on trying to, to, to hone our knowledge, to, to sharpen our knowledge, to get more data, research more, and then to do what we can to, one, you know, contribute to the world around us, and two, to do it in a way that is going to be economically sound for us and our partners. Yeah, and I think policy is going to be a huge uh, factor in all of those kind of concepts, if you will. I mean, if you just look at kind of your standard cannabis operator who's making an extract, right, there's a ton of waste products that could be chemical feedstocks for all of those products that you just mentioned. But there's regulations and policies in place that prevent the sale of chemicals derived from cannabis to these major markets. And then if you look at the hemp industry, who's able to actually play on an industrial scale because they have federal backing or at least kind of more institutional funding, if you will, mm -hmm. it's really, really challenging for those, those uh, startup companies, if you will, to enter into one of these established 100-year-old sectors because in order to produce the volumes, because it's going to be high volume, low margin kind of plays, the upfront capital needed and the runway required for, say, a hemp bioplastic plant to come online and actually ah. become competitive isn't, it's, it's astronomical, right? And so I think the only way that any of those entities truly have a, a fighting chance is through policy. So the other thing is, I would agree with you and I would add this, knowledge of policy and influencing policy, creating good policy, critical. And it will allow you to understand how to position yourself from a business perspective. And I'll also add this, because of this extraordinary opportunity of these products, of this plant, this feedstock, 
being off of the market for so long, the opportunity to create innovation in technologies, how to create the plastics, how to breed the best plant for plastic production, how to breed the best plant for paper, and then understanding how to create the best system and, and the best methodology. There's been, for creating paper, there's been 80 years of investment in how to create pulp paper from trees. I mean, we have invested trillions of dollars over the time, over time in how to get that industry efficient. Trillions of dollars into how to make plastics work and different types of plastics. Trillions of dollars into fiber on a global basis. And now there's an opportunity to start focusing on how to create opportunities to compete with those industries based upon access to the hemp plant. So you can play in that even while avoiding the enormous capital outlays necessary to build plants by focusing on the IP and by focusing on the innovation. That's the place where the individual investor, the smaller, tighter, more focused team can be involved without having as much capital behind them. What they need to do is make sure that their knowledge, their research, their due diligence is extraordinary. And the more they, more time they spend focused on that, the better they are with that, the better they'll be positioned for being able to navigate a space where there's going to be much more players with a lot more money. And I'll go back, Kellen, to my comment about billions of dollars being lit on fire and just burned. There's been... I don't need to say who they are. There's been a bunch of big companies who put huge amounts of capital into the cannabis and hemp industry, and all they have is write downs. So having the money doesn't actually necessarily mean you're going to have the success. This is a great time in history. We're being smart. We're being diligent. We're being effective in how you navigate the environment. It's like the age of the dinosaur on a corporate basis is coming to an end. And the smaller, more agile, more nimble, more adaptable animals, corporate animals, like, like into the mammals of when the age of the dinosaurs ended, being able to navigate it end up becoming more significant. And I think that that's the point in time that we're at. And again, and then when you add things like crowdfunding and the sort of solopreneurship that's going on now, it really does give a path where, yes, if you're not careful, you'll get crushed by the dinosaurs as they just stomp on you with their billions of dollars of capital and, and you know, legal teams, et cetera. If you're smart and you focus on good, good information and innovation, you can, out, you can outwit and outplay them. You also need a real strong sense of uh, resiliency because operating in this industry <laughs> is far from hard, right? I would say it, it hard would be on the easier side on how to describe it. And you need to be ready to navigate because like, as you were saying, when you first got started, you're, you're scenario planning for variable challenges domestically and internationally. And for someone who's new or from outside industry, that's kind of unknown space, right? Because when you come from a CPG world, you come from a Clorox, you're used to having the path established. The rules and regulations are written for you. You know how to navigate. You know who the players are. Here, you're not really sure. And things are changing on a day-to-day -day basis. So kind of being able to navigate and being nimble is really, really critical. But I want to challenge you one point, Leslie. I want to ask how do we get in wide industry adoption, right? It makes sense. I understand from a scientific standpoint, all the benefits, but how do we go from where we are today to get wider adoption for everyday consumers to wanting to make that choice to go to more of the hemp plastic versus 
the, the conventional current method. You know, a dear friend, Joe Bresney, who I mentioned, brilliant, brilliant political operative. He has one of my favorite nuggets of wisdom as regards policy. He always says you can count on a politician to do the right thing after you've removed every other choice. And so the same thing is true to a certain extent with consumers. We as consumers tend to navigate to what's easy, what is fast, what is a habit. We aren't even aware of the marketing and information that influences our decisions on a day-to-day basis. And as a result, it's hard for consumers to actually make those choices with their money to vote what they for what they think is right. When there's economic forces at play, you know, it's economically things are tough. We're going into a recession. There's been this divergence in, in wealth in the United States, in particular between the wealthy and the, the not wealthy. And, and that's all very real. So the answer to your question is it has to be driven by the entrepreneurs. The entrepreneurs have to be smart. They have to be resilient. They have to be diligent. This is a time where the opportunity is unlike anything we've ever seen. And if you are not incredibly diligent and spend your time really doing your homework to make sure you understand how to navigate it, if you're not incredibly focused on the partners you work with and their quality and the fact that you're aligned from a cultural and values basis, it will become a problem. So the answer is how do... How, to, to, to the question of how do we get the consumers to be able to make those right choices, it has to be driven by economics. Yes, you have to do the right thing, and it has to be economically feasible. So we have to get to the point where it's cheaper to produce plastic straws with hemp plastic, where it's cheaper to produce paper products with hemp paper, where it's cheaper, which already it is, it's more effective to produce fabrics based upon hemp than on cotton. Less water, less effluent, easier to process. It's in some ways easier to process. And so we need to make it efficient. One of my great examples of this is, we all have heard of hempcrete, right? Yep. Right? So um, I'm in Vegas. And one of the great things about being in Vegas is trade shows. There's a trade show for everything. There's a trade show for the yarn industry. There's a, a trade show for... The concrete and cement industry. Biggest so trade show in the biggest world. Biggest one, yeah. Biggest one in the world is the yeah. concrete one. One hundred thirty-five thousand attendants or something. I was like, what? So I send. I I can't believe you know that. That's incredible. Long story. Like, you're story. like one of the only people. That, oh, like you guys knowing this data point as extraordinary. I mean, I never forget that. Though, shout you know out to the Uber like. driver. Shout out to the Uber driver. It's all of Oh my God, that's amazing. Well, let me tell you what's. I sent my team to go to that trade show. I'm here in Vegas, so I can. Get into. I, I can find ways for my team to go into almost any show to help to do something. They go there and they go around and they ask all. They were ch- tasked with go speak to every single company. Go find scientists. Go find engineers, and and then go find executives and ask them what's the story with hempcrete. Are you doing anything with hempcrete? What do you know about hempcrete? And most people didn't know anything. There were a half a dozen or so that did. And what they said was really fascinating. Hempcrete's strength is its biggest drawback because what makes cement and concrete so usable is there were solvents and tools developed to be able to get rid of excess material, flash. So when somebody is using their equipment and there's all sorts of dried concrete on it, 
you can't let that make the machine unusable. You have to have something to get rid of it. Well, they have solvents that have been developed to specifically address that. So you can remove it without having to harm the equipment. You can, you know, when you're making something, you can make sure that it looks the way you want without excess material on it. You don't go looking around at buildings and seeing big pieces of, of, some, of, of hardened material sticking out of the side that was, wasn't part of the original mold that just, you know, no, they have ways to get rid of it. But hemp is so durable and so tough. And it hasn't had, again, this gets back to what I said about innovation. The invention of the solvents, the, the materials to render the excess hempcrete that is unnecessary or even in the way to be able to get rid of it doesn't exist yet. So as soon as we have that, then hempcrete becomes really competitive. But until that time, it's only going to be a cottage industry, pardon the pun, because it's going to be focused only on people that can deal with that in a small basis not at, not at scale. Yeah, and I'll actually add one point to that. There's a really cool company I was a big fan of called JBF, uh, just biofiber. They're based up in Canada. They're making like Lego block, mold injection, Lego block, like, like cinder blocks, right? But they're made from hemp herd and, and uh, water and, and lime, I think. But they're doing this plastic mold injection, right? From an automated factory perspective. And what they mentioned was one of the biggest obstacles that they were trying to overcome was they have this big vat that they mix it all up in, and then the, a super cool like modern mold injection goes down and injects it into the, the Lego block kind of situation. But unless the factory's running 24-7 and then they stop it, all the machinery breaks because of that exact point you just made, which was wild. They were trying to get, get over it economically and like um, trying to find solvents that didn't bankrupt the, the company, trying to get, get that stuff out of the, the system. So that's that's pretty cool. It's spot on. And, you know, again, there are so many things about this plant and so many things about this as a, a phenomenon that are just unbelievably disruptive. Uh, construction. Just look at the one of the largest industries in the world of consumer products is nutraceuticals and supplements. It's got to be approaching $400 billion a year at this point. When I was looking at it six years ago, it was $320 billion, $360 billion a year. And again, what's the single most disruptive aspect to it? hemp plant right now. Pharmaceuticals, the narrative around drug discovery. Now, it's no longer just cannabis and hemp. Now it's gotten into psychedelics and things like that. But the entire conversation the narrative around drug discovery has changed, again, as a result of the disruption from this. So everything in the industrial sector, fiber, plastic, paper, consumer products are being influenced. There's so much that's happening and so much changing. Again, going back to what we said, Agility and adaptability and flexibility are the key to being able to navigate this. And also policy, because like with the hemp construction material, you can't go get like a, as an everyday home buyer, you can't go buy, get a loan, a first time home loan, if it's not a, a stick and I can't, a stick and a stick and frame structure, meaning it's built out of lumber. Like I can't go get a loan from the bank to build a hemp house, which then goes right back to policy in terms of that's where it's all starts for these kind of innovative technologies to be, have wide adoption. It's a great point. Gets me back to one of the things that's most interesting about, you know, there's some really interesting um, counties in the United States with very low populations. It'd be great to see policy in those counties uh, lead the way because at a county level, you can actually make a difference and you could create new zoning regulations in those counties that would allow things to be done that way that could then be adopted by larger counties. I think that we're going to see that happen at some point in the not, not too distant future. It just makes, again, it makes 
as you remove every other choice and leave only this because it makes economic sense, that's going to start to happen. Does it also help the environment from an environmental protection standpoint? Absolutely. Again, can you, could you make, could you be involved in the hemp industry and have it be toxic? Absolutely. I mean, just look at the packaging problem that the legal cannabis industry has. It's really, it's a problem. I mean, go order a delivery and a plastic bag that's not made out of hemp plastic has packages that are wrapped in plastic that have plastic packages inside it. It's like three layers of plastic packaging for something that doesn't really need it and should really be in, again, hemp plastic and hemp paper. And even if it's not hemp, it should just be packaged more more intelligently. But, you know, so the answer is yes, it is potentially and really much easier to do things that are environmentally feasible and positive in these industries. It's It still requires the intention, the diligence, and the follow through to do it the right way. Because in like a perfect world, you would take the, the plant, right? You would process it. Any leftovers would then be used to create the packaging in, you know, so the whole plant was used to package it and deliver it in a perfect world, right? <laughs> now let's, you know, let's talk about, again, there's so much. One of the amazing things about being alive right now is as a global culture, we're entrepreneurial. We're still figuring it out around the world. A day doesn't go by here in Vegas when the conversation of water doesn't come up. Lake Mead is at historic low levels. That's not just water for farming in California, which is a huge part of it, and Arizona. It's not just water for Vegas, although not much of the water for Vegas comes from Lake Mead. Some of it does. It's also the water for the Hoover Dam, for the hydroelectric plant. If that water goes below a certain level, where it's not going to the intakes for the turbines, a very large number of people are going to lose electricity. So the conversations about drought and water are rampant. There are major cities around the world that have been facing real water shortages, like Chennai, India, a Mexico City, right? And so now, and yet, go look at how our bathrooms work. People are using for waste perfectly good, clean water is being flushed down the toilet, literally. When instead of using the wastewater from sinks that gets recycled into the into the uh, to the other waste in the home, it's just all just getting flushed down the drain. And so we need to be more efficient in how we utilize all of our resources. And this is a great way. One of the things I've said, and so many other people, like Emily, have said, this is not just a new industry; it's an opportunity to conduct industry in a new way so that it sets examples that other industries can follow. And we still, I I believe that, and we're still doing it. And I think it's, you're going to see more and more of that. Leslie, what is a lesser known fact about hemp that would shock or surprise 90% of the people in the cannabis industry? Uh, So it's not just hemp, but I'll, I'll talk about it. The, The only truly legal consumer product in the United States is hemp cigarettes. Why? What I said earlier about Wimpy, work, work and process hemp extract. When you're under the Farm Bill of 2018, where it's hemp, if it's less than 0.3% THC, everybody that's taking that hemp plant, processing it through all of the different methods that are out there to process it, and concentrating it down to an extract that then 
gets turned into CBD, CBG, CBN, CBDV, and the list goes on. In that extraction process, the percentage of THC by weight goes way above 0.3%. At that point, it's federally illegal. Like you and every and every and every derivative product you made from it is technically illegal. Not only like are there issues with shipping across state lines because of the gray area around CBD and, and other cannabinoids, but there is, I mean, clearly it's according to attorneys that represent the FDA and other government agencies, once that happens, it's not, it, it's in a gray area. Whereas hemp cigarettes, you're just taking the hemp flower processing and put it into a hemp cigarette and then selling it, you never get above 0.3%. So technically speaking, as a consumer product, that is based upon that for, for use. It's essentially the only legal product out there. Nobody really thinks about that. Let's do a quick rapid fire. True or false, Las Vegas will eventually become the Disneyland of cannabis. It already is. True. Outside U.S. country, you think will be a major disruptor for the hemp or cannabis industry? Mexico. Single favorite aspect of Burning Man, and are you still involved? The culture and community, and I absolutely am still involved. Psychedelics as a medicine, yay or nay? Absolutely yay. Do you think the media influences culture, yay or nay? <laughs> I am a big fan of, yay, I'm a big fan of Marshall McLuhan and um, uh, Doug Robertson and others. I mean, our world is, we live in media now. Media is the world we live in. Uh, McLuhan said in the book, Understanding Media, the medium is the message. And that's the world we live in today. It is the matrix. The matrix we need to get unplugged from is the world that surrounds us, which is the media that surrounds us. And it's all individualized to every person. What each person gets is their own specific feed of information that's different from the person right next to them. We are surrounded by media and it's and we have no idea. It's every aspect of our lives is influenced by it. Yeah. Yay in a big way. How do we unplug? Ah, uh, go to Burning Man. That's a good answer. The blue pill, the red pill, right? 15 years from now, most homes will be built using hemp. No, nay, sadly. True or false, you met your wife through cannabis sales. It's true. I met her because when she was, <laughs> I sold her pot. When, that's how we first met when, when we were both kids. True. The statutes of limitations are long past. That's and, why I asked. I, I knew yeah, the statute of limitations yeah, yeah. passed. And, 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 and it was due diligence, really. I was just doing research. Due, due diligence. <laughs> Always. I appreciate the due diligence. True or false, we will see a collaboration with Cypress Hill in the future. Well, I have every intention and desire to do it. And if it serves Be Real, if it serves Cypress, I am there to do to work with them. He's a dear friend and he's a great guy. And, and, and he is the they are the OG, man. Like, they got banned from Saturday Night Live in the 90s for lighting up a joint. Before anybody was ever realistically thinking about a legal market, they were there. And so if I can do something to continue to work with them on the and what they've done, I would absolutely do it in a heartbeat. He knows it, they know it, the team knows it, and I'm here to do it, and I hope that we have a chance, and I think we will. What draws you into early-stage disruptive trends in technology? Great question. I've asked myself that for a while. And I think the answer is, it's just the way I'm wired. I, for whatever reason, I was, I got involved in computers back in 1980, you know, which was pretty early. 
I was just a kid and I was just fascinated by them. I got super involved in the inter, inter, in the internet and new media in the mid to late 90s. I was involved in online games in the 90s. I was I got I got attracted to Burning Man in 1997, 98. I went for the first time. I was writing about virtual currencies and studying money, banking and gold from 2004 on. I was studying virtual currencies before there was even such a thing as a cryptocurrency. So when I first encountered cryptocurrencies, I was floored. That was around 2010, 2011. And I'd been speaking and writing about it. So the answer is, I'm just wired that way. I'm attracted to things that are new and that represent massive change in how we're going to live and do business on a global scale. Uh, it's nothing that I ever tried to, to develop. It's just how I, you know, how I came out. Since you've been in the cannabis industry, what did you get right? And most importantly, what did you get wrong? Wow, great, great, great question. And one that most people don't ask, because you learn more from your mistakes than you do your successes. So let's talk about what I got wrong first. I got wrong in self-regulation. I was sure that by this time, the cannabis industry and the hemp industry would have followed the alcohol industry after the drop of prohibition. And they would have realized how important self-regulation was like alcohol did. Within a year of the drop of prohibition, the alcohol industry had been investing a ton of money into self-regulation because they realized if the industry doesn't self-regulate, government is going to come in and regulate and they're not going to be nearly as good at it as if they self-regulate. Won't be as good for business. Won't be as good for the consumers. Won't be good for anybody. Well, the I was sure, I was speaking about this in 2014. I started talking about, oh, self-regulation is imminent and it's critical. And we still haven't been able to see it happen. And I was way off. I was certain we would have self-regulatory bodies that would be making it easier for, for government regulators, would have made a bunch of things easier. And it just hasn't happened. And I don't know why. And there's all sorts of, um, there's all sorts of consequences of this. Why do you think it hasn't happened? I think it has to do with the flows of capital. And, you know, historically capital free market where, where there was a ton of loose money out there. There was like, look, historically low interest rates, a lot of capital out there for many years now. The cannabis industry, the legal cannabis industry, and even the hemp, legal hemp industry, even federally legal in a federally legal industry has had a challenge as it regards getting traditional lending and access to capital because of the stigmas and because of the artifacts of prohibition. And so that's my friend, Rick Cusick, the former uh, associate editor of High Times. And he always said the artifacts of prohibition are gonna follow us for years to come. And he was right. And so the answer is, it's those artifacts of prohibition following us that have limited capital. Capital's limit has then affected so much decision-making, particularly around having the free capital to invest in a self-regulatory body. So you have to have enough money in your enterprise to donate a quarter million dollars a year for a period for the bigger businesses, 10, 20, 30,000 dollars a year for smaller businesses to these self-regulatory um, ideas. And nobody really wanted to write the check. And it's not that the entrepreneurs are greedy. It's that they don't have access to capital the way other industries do. And it affects so much of your decision-making. And that's one of the things. And so I definitely got that wrong. And then some of the things that I got right, 
Well, I, what I also got wrong, I expected that by this year we would see the descheduling of cannabis. Now, I'll claim force majeure for that. I never anticipated, you know, governmental uh, gridlock on, on the scale that we've seen um, in the last, you know, six years. And I also didn't anticipate a global pandemic, which greatly influenced you know, policy. If you could have forecasted that, my God, you could have really, <laughs> you could have really saved some lives. I know. It would, have been, it would have saved some lives and it would have just been made the world easier to navigate the last few years. It's been challenging. So I got that wrong. What did I, you know, some of the things that I got right. I got right the need for self-regulation. I got right. I got right the um, a couple of the trends in the industry that we're going to start to see the importance of brands. That we're going to start to see. I, I had been saying for years that um, we need to get to microdosing rather than macrodosing. I was saying, you know, the seventy-five milligram edibles. Yeah, there are some people out there that are going to use those, but it's going to be the three milligram edibles and the five milligram edibles that are going to be the ones that really end up being where the market is. And I've been predicting back, going back to 2014. I've predicted a couple of other things that we still haven't seen happen, but we will see happen. So I, I think I'll be right on. Blends. We're going to start to see in the legal cannabis industry, we're going to start to see blends. Hemp cigarettes, that's something I've also been saying is going to become something for a while. We're starting to see happen now, and I think it's going to become massive for so many reasons. Uh, harm reduction. Um, a, a natural place for people to use as an exit from the use of tobacco uh, to eliminate addiction to nicotine and as a way to get some of the terpenes and cannabinoids into your body. Um, the, some of the things that I got right were um, how policy was going to manifest on a state-to-state -state basis and that each state was essentially creating a ring fence where it was going to be its own market and that that was going to favor small operators and that large operators were going to have challenges around that, which they still do. So you start to you can still see small regional operators get very big, even while the MSOs are out there, they're not able to really come in and shut down the small operators. Small operators can compete effectively against an MSO because they have a better understanding of how to navigate their own local uh, regulatory framework and influence it. And so the MSOs trying to manage the regulatory framework of California and Nevada and Oregon and Washington and Illinois and New Jersey and New York, I mean, that's a, that is a catastrophic burden to try to, to, to manage at this point. And we haven't gotten to the point where they can achieve the economies of scale. So it still is, is uh, um, really favoring the smaller state-based operator. And there's, I mean, there's probably a couple of other things I've gotten wrong and right but those are some of the ones that I like. I appreciate you sharing that. What is one tiny nugget about you, Leslie, that the Leslie Hive wouldn't know? Uh, probably that I played didgeridoo. I played the didgeridoo as a musical instrument. I started playing decades ago, and I still do to this day. Since you've been in the cannabinoid industry, what has been the biggest misconception? It was my, not, my learning about policy. Uh, I thought that politicians speak English and they don't. <laughs> it is English, actually. I'm sorry. I thought they spoke the same language as me. Yeah. It's English. But what the words mean from a policy perspective, the way that they make their decisions, I, I completely misunderstood it. And again, my Joe Bresney, a mentor and friend, it was his and I know a number of other people, Congressman Blumenauer and others that I've had the, the you know, good fortune to work with, the treasurer of Nevada, Zach Conine, the governor of Nevada, and so many other people along the way uh, that have gotten me to understand that the political environment in the United States makes the navigation 
of policy so completely different from the navigation of business decisions that you would not be able to think that the same language describes both, and yet it does. So people who speak about policy will use English words, but they don't have the same meanings in the context when they talk about them that, that it does for business and things and a normal English. Before we do predictions, we ask all of our guests, if you could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass onto the next generation, what would it be? Slow is smooth. Smooth is fast. Slow down. Take your time and be diligent. And the major lesson that I've learned is the importance of taking your time to know who you're working with. And when they tell you who they are, believe them and be completely comfortable saying, we'll be friends. It's best for us to, to look into uh, working, working separately. Well said. All right, prediction time. Leslie, it's 2032. What sector or part of the world does hemp impact the most? 2032 plastics. Plastics. But that's going to be like, so we're talking about nine years from now. So I, I say it's going to be paper first, paper, fiber, then plastics is sort of in that order, or fiber, paper, and then plastics. Plastics will take the longest, but will have the biggest impact. Kellen? I think the chemical feedstock industry, right? The commodity chemical feedstock industry that, I mean, terpenes, there's a ton of potential for terpenes to be used in novel plastics, right? I mean, the amount of chemicals that come off of the in cannabis extracts, right? There's over 400 different chemical components in an extract and we're typically only selling one or two, right? I think that the the opportunity for the commodity chemical industry is massive. Great call, the ingredients industry. Yeah. The ingredient, massive industry for food and for so many things. I, I think that that's a great comment. Helen's done some pretty cool research there. It is a eye-opening when you see some of the numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, for me... I, I wanted plastic and, and paper also is good, but you took those off the board. So I'm going to have to go with the housing market because uh, I still feel like they can make a big disruption. If we can start building some houses and, and, and kind of get away from cutting down the trees, I think we can make a big difference. And I think the climate aspect, and everyone's screaming climate, can, like we need to help the climate. Well, what are we really doing? So if we can start by doing step ones, which seems like a, a, an easy way to get started, you know, that would be the route that I would hope that, that we would take. I love, I love that. And I'm still thinking about Kellen's comment about the ingredients industry. You're the, that's the first time I've heard anybody. I mean, I've been looking at the ingredients industry. There's a huge ingredients company. They say that they influence a billion lives every day. Um, it's a company out of, I think, Kansas or maybe Iowa. And uh, I remember talking to them and they were interested in, in the hemp plant and the cannabis plant to start adding it to their ingredients business. And um that really got me thinking because it's such a sleeper that people would normally just go by. And it's such a huge part of how commerce exists in the world today. There are businesses that do nothing but make different ingredients for industry. Yeah. And that is a, that's a massive one. Yeah. I mean, like the cosmetics industry, right? That's just, it's, it's insane how big like those, those feet are. Who knows? The fracking industry uses hemp-based uh, components as an ingredient. Yep. So Leslie, for our listeners, they want to get touched. They want to learn more. Where can they find you? Uh, they can go to my Twitter account, Leslie Box Score on Twitter. They can find, um, there is a, a page on 
uh, Facebook Leslie Boxcore. They can find me, Leslie Boxcore, on LinkedIn. They can go to the Electrum Partners website, and they can go, uh, obviously, to the Indoor Harvest website, indoorharvest.com, electrumpartners.com. So really those places, electrumpartners.com, indoorharvest.com, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook are the places to find me. I'm pretty easy to find. We'll link those all up in the show notes. Thanks so much for taking the time. This has been a great conversation. I hope I have a reason to come back. Yeah, we'll have to have you back. <laughs> for sure. I really enjoyed it. This has Thanks been fantastic. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name's Kate, and I'm your host of the Pop Moms podcast. I started the Pop Moms podcast, well, because I wanted to end the stigma against using cannabis, specifically with moms, but also anyone who chooses to consume. I strive for a balance of humor and education, along with some pretty rad guests, to help combat social biases that come with consuming cannabis. Kids are hard. Join me for regular podcast episodes packed with parenting hacks, real-life stories, and of course, my favorite cannabis products. The days are long, but the years are short. So roll another J and take a deep breath. Keep blazing and stay amazing.